quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And a warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for a special snow edition of the programme today. The New York City area getting its first real snowfall of the season. OK, OK, it's just a little dusting where we are, but we're extremely excited all the same. And our news flow filled with snow this hour too. S is for stocks. Wall Street beginning the week on a firmer footing. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen telling CNN that it's, quote, so far so good in the fight against inflation. N is for Nigeria, Africa's largest economy, still counting the votes in its consequential presidential election. We're live in Lagos with the latest. O is for ousted Canada, just the latest government to announce a TikTok app ban on government phones. The United States laying down the law again as well. We'll have a complete report and China's response too. And finally, W for wealth. Monday's 5% rally in Tesla shares restores Elon Musk as the richest person on the planet. Maybe even the universe will go that far. Tesla stock has bounced almost 100% from its recent lows. Context, though, is key. And it may sound good, but it's still down some 50% from all-time highs, as you can see on that chart. Musk Getting richer, though, must mean a more positive market picture. And it does. U.S. futures rising to end the month, though barely. Europe also mostly higher, too. But there is discouraging news on the U.S. consumer spending, a key driver of the American economy, retailer target topping profit estimates, but also warning at the same time that consumers are focusing more on buying necessities. It says the retail environment is, quote, very challenging, This comes after similar comments from Walmart and Home Depot last week. Tough news on the consumer front in Europe today, too, with inflation heating up once again in France and Spain. Goods and services, the driver there. A mixed picture in the meantime, too, over and across the Asian markets as investors close out the trading month. Hong Kong announcing, though, it's finally scrapping its almost three-year mask mandate. All the details on that coming up too. But first, we begin with the latest from the war in Ukraine. And President Zelensky says the fighting in the eastern city of Bakhmut is, quote, getting more and more challenging. According to the Ukrainian military, Russia's Wagner mercenary group is sending its most highly trained units to fight there. In the meantime, in Kyiv, a surprise visit by U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Melissa Bell joins us on this, reinforcing, I think, the financial and moral support that we saw from President Biden this time last week, too. I know you had the chance to speak to the Treasury Secretary. Talk to us about that and, of course, the latest from the East as well. The very latest from the East, first of all, and we've been getting some fairly harrowing accounts, Julia, from some of the soldiers uh, who are leading that battle. You mentioned a moment ago those uh, words from President Zelensky last night, the latest from the officials on the ground. One soldier telling CNN, look, take those official accounts and imagine a level of difficulty that is 100% higher than that. Other, another soldier describing the scenes there as hellish. And on some of the videos that we were able to geolocate yesterday, you could really see the effect of the weather that you can see behind me, Julia, uh, muddy, uh, 
uh, terrain, some parts of it flooded. Now, the soldiers are also speaking about the fact that they're holding firm because they say those elite soldiers are being sent, some of the most battle-ready, battle-hardened groups, and they believe, the soldiers, that as long as they can hold it, uh, they're gaining time for what Ukraine has promised will be a spring of counter-offensive uh, to come. But uh, fairly difficult details to read from. They say, though, that they are holding the town, refuting Russian claims that they've managed to encircle it entirely and saying that, on the contrary, uh, there are a couple of supply routes that remain open, even though they are under enemy fire, Julia. Yeah, and as we you can see there, and we're showing you know, what appears to be drone pictures of just utter devastation. Um, Melissa, talk to us then about to the US Treasury Secretary, because you did manage to speak to her. Well, it was, it was a visit that was designed to show once again, Julia, the unwavering American support uh, for Kyiv just a few days after uh, Ukraine celebrated the fact uh, that the city still stood. The optics have been the message. From the president himself to the secretary of state and now to the treasury secretary, unwavering American support delivered in person to Kyiv. Thank you so much. From a divided and testy G20 in Bangalore, where she chastised the Russian delegation, Janet Yellen came to see for herself the impact so far of about $50 billion of American aid to Ukraine. The comments you made to the Russian officials uh, in India, do you get a sense that Moscow's listening? I think they are listening. Um, I think that we have imposed very serious costs on them and they hear from not only the United States but a large coalition. On the Treasury Secretary's tour, an invincibility point where warmth and power are provided when neither are available. Here, Ukrainians shelter even as allies try to punish Moscow. We will not tolerate systematic violations by any country. Um, of the sanctions that we've put in place that are intended to deprive Russia of access to military equipment to wage this war. And we've been very clear with the Chinese government that um, the consequences of violating those sanctions would be very severe. I'd like to move on to more domestic matters, if I may. Um, uh, We've seen uh, the fight against inflation take a hit, uh, PC hitting 5.4%. Do you believe at this stage that the Fed is behind the curve or that a soft landing is is still the most likely scenario? I personally believe that um, it's possible to bring inflation down. Um, while maintaining. We have a very strong labor market. I think we, we can maintain it, I would say, so far so good. But back home, the cost of the war in Ukraine, including its inflationary pressures, grows more contentious. As the war enters its second year and with an American election year beginning to loom, there are questions about how long the West's unwavering support can last. So I think there is broad support among our allies. Uh, Many members of Congress have been to Kyiv to visit, and I think all of us are inspired by that and will be ready to support it for as long as it takes. So for now, a further pledge of the support that's allowed Ukraine to come this far. 
What was most remarkable, Julia, was seeing Secretary Yellen's emotion. And I think that's the case for all of the American leaders and Congress people who've made the visit here. It is one thing to follow it. It is another thing to fund it. It is something still different to see it for yourself, Julia. Mm, Absolutely. An important conversation. Melissa, thank you for that. Okay, to Russia now. President Putin speaking at an annual meeting with the country's security service known as the FSB. Unfortunately, there are losses in our ranks. The leadership of the FSB must do everything to provide additional support to the families of our fallen comrades. Fred Plankin joins us now from Moscow. Fred, another morale-building speech acknowledging the vital importance, I think, of the security services and that they will need to step up their activities, but also acknowledging and unavoidably the loss on the battlefield too. Well, first of all, I think you're absolutely right, Julia, that this was very much a morale-building speech for the security services, and it's sort of a pattern that we've seen from Vladimir Putin over the last couple of days. In fact, yesterday, he was giving a speech to uh, Russia's uh, special operations forces, and and were there telling them that they were doing a very important job, that they needed to continue to do it, and then obviously talking about the special military operation, the war in Ukraine that obviously Russia is involved in. Now, today, he's telling the FSB operatives exactly the same thing, saying it's very important, the work that they're doing, and I I think some of the things that we picked up on were extremely interesting, where he acknowledged that they were active on the front lines in the war in Ukraine, but that he also talked about them being active behind enemy lines as well, obviously trying to infiltrate um, the territory that's uh, that's controlled by the Ukrainian forces. So that certainly seemed like an important acknowledgement. Also, the fact that he did say there, and and you guys had that in the soundbite, which is very uh, important as well, that there have been losses so far uh, in the ranks of the FSB as this, as, as they call it, special military military operation goes on. I think for Vladimir Putin, it's absolutely clear that these special services and the military as well are extremely important to how things go forward uh, in the war in Ukraine that now, of course, is in its second year. And we're still, progress is pretty slow to come by uh, for, for the Russian forces. He said it was very important also for them to get established and establish more of the FSB in those areas that are now controlled by the Russians inside Ukraine. Obviously, the Russians view that as their own territory. Vladimir Putin talking about that that was important as well. And I do also think that that segment where he talked about the possible infiltration, not just by Ukrainian operatives, but by Western intelligence services as well, and that the FSB needed to step up its game there, I think that does show just how serious Vladimir Putin is about all this. And of course, that was something that the Kremlin spokesman had said before Vladimir Putin even started talking, that this was going to be a serious conversation, that he was going to pave the way for the way things move forward with the FSB in this coming year, Julia. Yeah, and it underscores um, a conversation that we've been having really since this war began, that there's there's two battles going on here. There's the kinetic and the physical war, and there's mm. also the informational war that's taking place as well. Um, very much tied to that, the airspace around the uh, main airport in St. Petersburg closed temporarily earlier today. Immediately, rumours were flying about potential hack attack. What are the authorities saying, if anything, about what happened, Fred? Yeah, it was quite interesting because originally they were speaking about an unidentified flying object in the skies around uh, St. Petersburg, around Pulkovoy Airport in St. Petersburg, really a pretty wide area around that, uh, around that airport. The airspace was closed off, no flights for a very long period of time. Later, the authorities were saying that there was some sort of hack by, of radio and TV station around that area that then broadcast the message that there had been air raid alerts going on there. Um, they later said that that was fake. And obviously all of this was lifted and now at the airport, the 
traffic there is moving pretty pretty normally once again. We did hear from Aeroflot, from the main carrier here in Russia, that they were doing things to make sure that they tried to get their schedule back on track because obviously a lot of flights were canceled this morning. But it certainly was a, an interesting sort of uh, set of segment. You're absolutely right. Of course, it does tie in possibly to the information war as well, where, of course, the Russians are now saying that this is a fake message that was broadcast. And apparently some of those air raid alerts that could be heard there are very similar to the ones that obviously Ukrainians go through so often right now as they're under attack, especially the critical infrastructure in Ukraine from Russian missiles. Yes, Fred, great to have you there to uh, be able to separate fact from fiction for us. Fred Pleitgen, great to have you. Thank you. Now the wait in Nigeria continues. Three days after voting began, 23 out of 36 states have declared their tallies in the race to be the next president. The ruling party candidate, Bola Ahmed Tinubu, is leading so far. But of course, frustration and anger are growing. And now three opposition parties are calling for a fresh election and the resignation of the Electoral Commission chairman, Larry Madobo, joins us live from Lagos. So growing consensus among the opposition parties that this whole process, and we're talking millions and millions of people, have to go back to the polls. What are the Electoral Commission saying? So far, the Electoral Commission has rejected any, any calls for a redo of this election, but these calls are growing. We've been trying to figure out this past couple of days how much of the irregularities and the places where the polls did not take place and the violence and the voter intimidation, how much of it rose to the level of invalidating the entire election. At least these three main opposition parties in Nigeria think that they were so widespread that it invalidated the entire election. They're calling for a new election, which is unlikely. I I gotta say this, especially because the ruling party candidate, the APC, the All People's All Progressives Congress, Bolatinubu, his party says they're on their way to victory. They're already 1.5 million votes ahead with 13 or so states announced and they will take this thing. I want to read for you a section of the statement from these three main opposition parties in Nigeria. What they just said today, they say, for instance, that the Democratic, the People's Democratic Party, the Labour Party, the ADC and other aligned parties shall not be part of the process currently going on at the National Coalition Center, and we demand that this sham of an election should be immediately canceled. They go on to say that we're also calling for a fresh election to be carried out within the window allowed by the Electoral Act and in accordance with laid down INEC procedure for the conduct of the 2023 election. INEC is the Independent National Electoral Commission, and they're calling for the chairman of the Electoral Commission to step aside if this new election were to take place and somebody from outside the commission to take the reins of carrying out that fresh election. This throws a spanner in the works and we will definitely hear some strong reaction from Bola Tinudubu's party. He is the ruling party candidate. He's been a kingmaker. In fact, his entire premise, his motive for this election has been, it's my time because he's been a kingmaker in lots of other ways for lots of other presidents, including President Muhammad Buhari, and he's believed that it was time for him. So I don't think he'll be accepting this, uh, Julia. Yeah, and that context is vitally important with what around half of the votes counted now and the fact that that he's in the lead. You would expect him to say, hey, let's just wait for the result here um, versus the opposition parties perhaps calling for for fresh elections. Um, What's critical here is the people and what they decide and are willing to accept. Larry, what's your sense of whoever they support, what the people are saying and feeling at this moment, and will we ultimately get a result? Will they accept it, whatever it is? Because these opposition parties have done a joint statement, that means that it covers a lot more of the population. 
Peter Obi of the Labour Party got a lot of young people excited in this election, got record numbers of them to register to vote. And I've spoken to Nigerians who felt disenfranchised by places where polls just didn't take place or where they were intimidated, where there was violence, where ballot materials were destroyed. And they also felt that this did not represent their views. So the fact that the opposition parties are speaking in a combined voice, that adds to the fuel. And I think I've been saying this a couple, the past couple of days on our air that there's a growing number of Nigerians who feel that if this outcome does not represent their views, then we might have a problematic situation here. This could escalate quickly. And this will again add to that fire of people who feel so unhappy that they somehow feel that the Electoral Commission colluded the ruling party to disenfranchise them, essentially to suppress the votes. Yeah, they need to count quicker. Larry Madowa, thank you for that. Okay, to Asia now, and a case of unmasking the masks. More than two and a half years and almost 1,000 days later, people in Hong Kong will no longer face hefty fines for violating face covering mandates. Chrissy Liu Stout reports on Hong Kong's About Face. This is one of the last places on the planet where you still have to wear a mask. But after almost three years of both indoor and outdoor use in public, Hong Kong is finally dropping its mask mandate. Now, I still have to wear this today because the mandate is not fully scrapped until Wednesday, March the 1st. Hong Kong's top leader, John Lee, made the announcement on Tuesday. In order to give people a very clear message that Hong Kong is resuming normalcy, I think this is the right time to make this decision. For much of the past three years, Hong Kong and neighboring Macau both followed China's strict zero COVID policy. Macau dropped its mask restrictions on Monday. And according to Dr. Karen Greppin at the University of Hong Kong, face masks have played an important role in reducing community transmission in Hong Kong. But now that almost everyone is vaccinated and most people have also been infected, dropping the legal mandate is well past due. People can now do their own risk assessment to determine if they want to wear one or not. Hong Kong's move to scrap masks comes after the government launched its Hello Hong Kong campaign to bring back tourists and international visitors and business people. And starting Wednesday, they can breathe easy with the mask mandate effectively over. Christy Liu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Nice to see her smile. Straight ahead, recession on the radar or more of a no-landing landing. We'll discuss the economic outlook with Moody's chief economist after the break and later tackling food waste by taking out the trash. I'll chat with the CEO of a startup turning your rubbish into something far more useful. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. So far, so good on the fight to bring down inflation. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says that even though inflation in America is still too high, she believes a soft landing is on the radar. But risks, of course, still remain. The global situation we face is very uncertain. There can be shocks from it. But look, inflation still is too high. But generally, if you look over the last year, inflation has been coming down. And um, I, I know the Fed is committed to continuing the process of bringing it down to more normal levels. Inflation has been falling, but not at the pace many economists had hoped for. And recent economic data has put more pressure on the Federal Reserve to keep raising interest rates in order to tame rising prices. Joining us now to discuss this and more, Mark Zandi, Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, always great to have you on the show. Do you agree with that assessment? So far, so good. I guess the emphasis has to be on so far. 
Yeah, no, Julie, I do. I think we're making progress. I mean, as the secretary pointed out, inflation is still painfully high, but it's def- definitely moving in the right direction. And all the trend lines uh, look pretty good. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I expect inflation to get back in the bottle close to the Fed's target uh, a year, year and a half from now. And things feel on track. Uh, you know, obviously, in a world of high inflation and high interest rates, and of course, the Federal Reserve is trying to figure this all out on the fly, you know, recession risks are high. But I, I think we have a fighting chance to get through this with without a recession. So, yeah, I, I would agree with the secretary. It, significant part of the uh, cushioning effect that we've seen is the activity of, of consumers and a, what, $2 trillion cash cushion that consumers built up during the pandemic. Where is that cushion today? And if it's so plump still, why is household debt at record highs? Well, uh, yeah, there's still a lot of cash. Consumers have been drawing down that extra savings they did during the pandemic. You know, a lot of people were sheltering in place and couldn't spend, so they saved that money. And then, of course, a lot of lower middle income households received government support and they spent uh, they saved that money. And that that has really helped to cushion the blow to their purchasing power from the high inflation. And and that's allowed consumers to continue to uh, do their thing. You know, they're not out there spending with abandon, but they're are doing what they typically do. And it's because of that cash cushion. There's still uh, a lot left, particularly for middle and high income households. I mean, just to give you a number, at the peak, there was two and a half trillion dollars worth of excess saving. Now we're down to 1.6 trillion. So, you know, it's down, but it's still considerable. But, you know, low income households, uh, they likely have blown through that excess saving that cash. It, they no longer have that. They need, they use that to pay those gas bills and the rent and, and, the, and the, the grocery bill. And now they are turning to their credit cards and unsecured personal lines. And so we are seeing uh, uh, debt growth increase significantly among that group. And so that's a sign of stress. So hopefully we, we need that inflation to come in to take that pressure off uh, those households so they don't need to borrow quite as much to maintain their, their purchasing power. So it's a bit of a race here. But, uh, but uh, in aggregate, you know, consumers still have a, a lot of cash sitting in their bank accounts that they can use if they need to. I know. I always feel sorry for the, the lower income households when we talk about in aggregate. And to that point, there was yeah. a, a headline in, in the time in time um, online and, and you were quoted in the article and it said the U.S. economy is doing too well, um, which is bad for the people that aren't rich, because it's always those lower income people that we're talking about now that are already borrowing on credit and, and racking up credit card bills. And the question to your point about bringing inflation down is how much more expensive that credit gets as interest rates rise and, and how much more punishing it is yeah. for, for those people. How much more do you think the Fed has to do in order to be at least comfortable, even if it's not back to around the 2% target? Because I guess that's the key question. I think yeah, it's a great question, and that's the the crux of the matter. I mean, I, I think they're close. Uh, you know, it feels like to me the interest rate hikes they put in place are are slowing the economy down. You can feel it in the housing market. You can feel it in different parts of manufacturing, interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy. So it feels like things are throttling back. Uh, and I'm hopeful that the Fed only needs to raise rates another couple, three more times, quarter point each time. That's pretty much what the Fed has articulated to everyone that they're going to do. I think they'll probably follow through on that. And then I think that's the end of it, Julia. So hopefully by early, uh, late spring, early summer, uh, uh, we will have seen the end of the rate hikes. And not that they're going to come back down quickly. We've got, they're not going to lower rates until inflation is you know, clearly back to their target. and It's more comfortable for people. That could take a while, but uh, I think we're pretty close to the rate end of the rate hikes. If we're not, 
then I, I, you know, my optimism here about the economy and avoiding recession will be misplaced because the higher they have to push rates, the more likely it's going to undermine the economy and push us into recession. And your note this week, you talk about consumers keeping the faith and actually that, that recession ultimately is about consumers losing the faith. Let's assume that you're right and the Federal Reserve's predictions over what they have to do in terms of further interest rate hikes is correct. Do you buy the concept of a no landing economic outcome? So not a hard landing, not a soft landing that actually growth can slow, inflation can come down, but it, we don't actually have to see any kind of recession. Uh, well, I, I think the, the yeah, I think the no landing uh, kind of a description is that the economy keeps barreling along here, but inflation keeps coming in and goes back to target and we're all good. I doubt that. I, you know, my sense is that, you know, there's going to be it's going to it's the economy is going to slow here. It, uh, job growth is going to uh, uh, weaken even to a point where unemployment starts to rise a bit. Uh, so uh, it's going to feel a bit uncomfortable here, Julia. I don't I don't think there's any way around that. So. I don't think we're going to experience a no landing. Uh, soft landing doesn't do it for me either because I don't think it's going to be soft. Uh, you know, I, I, I call it a slow session, not a recession. We're not going backwards, but we're going nowhere fast. So so a slow session. So if we're looking for the right words to describe what's dead ahead, uh, you know, I don't think soft landing, no landing, that doesn't work for me. You know, I, 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 slow session is, feels like a, a much better description of what's what's coming. Yeah, actually, the perfect word. So slow session and the word Maybe. aggregate is now formally banned on first move. <laughs> Mark Sandy. Okay, thank you fair so enough. Much. Oh, we'll do. You can come up with something else. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Mark Sandy, great to chat to you. Okay, coming up after the break, what are you afraid of? China criticizes the United States for banning TikTok from government devices. All the details. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday and an unsettled open as Wall Street closes out February trading, a challenging month, too, for stocks, with all the major averages currently down by more than 2%. Not a lot of Valentine's Month hearts out there as investors pour over the charts. The stock news today, too. Call it perhaps the return of the lockdown stock. Zoom shares are zooming ahead after an earnings beat and strong forward guidance. Context, though, is key. As always, Zoom is still down 44% this past year amid the uncertain outlook for teleconferencing post-lockdowns. Shares of retailer Target in the meantime pretty flat in early trade, the company beating on earnings but offering weaker forward guidance. As we discussed earlier, warning that consumers are spending less on discretionary type items. And in the meantime, China has accused the United States of being afraid of an app popular with young people after the White House ordered federal agencies to ban TikTok within 30 days on government-issued devices. Assembly move has been ordered by Canada and the EU, of course, too. Kevin Liptak joins us now from Washington, D.C. Kevin, great to have you with us. U.S. officials had raised concerns that the Chinese government could order ByteDance, which owns TikTok, to hand over important data. And this was Congress's decision to act. And now we're following through. 
Yeah, exactly right. Remember, Congress passed this at the end of last year. Now the White House is telling government agencies that they have 30 days to wipe TikTok off of devices used by federal employees. Now that there had been a number of uh, departments and agencies within the federal government who had already taken this step, places like the Pentagon, the State Department, the Department of Homeland Security, who are handling the most sensitive data. But this would apply to the rest of the uh, federal government. And the White House says uh, that this will be a critical step in protecting sensitive government information. Now, TikTok, the company did respond yesterday. They said that this was no more than political theater. They said the ban on TikTok on federal devices passed in December without any deliberation. And unfortunately, that that approach has served as a blueprint for other world governments. And that is correct. As you mentioned, uh, places like Canada and the EU also considering taking similar steps that would uh, prevent federal employees from using TikTok on their government uh, devices. Uh, But this is clearly a hot button political issue in the United States as as well. And in fact, even today, Julia, Republicans in the House are moving forward on legislation that would give President Biden greater leeway in uh, making a nationwide ban on TikTok, effectively making it illegal to use on any phones in the United States. Uh, A number of states have also uh, implemented their own bans on government devices. And what you're seeing in some states is they're uh, banning TikTok for use on campuses, on state uh, colleges and universities. So really trying to crack down uh, on this app where they really fear uh, that uh, users' privacy could be at risk, uh, information could be shared with the Chinese government. Uh, But this could prove politically uh, unpopular as well. Two thirds of teens in the United States use TikTok. So this is clearly a hot button issue uh, that President Biden will be dealing with as part of a broader uh, crackdown on China, part of a broader look at how the U.S. is dealing with China uh, in the months ahead. Yes, ordinary citizens giving up their data is uh, perhaps one thing, government officials and uh, protected information, quite another. Kevin, thank you for that. Kevin Liptak. Okay, now to some stunning testimony from the media mogul behind Fox News. Rupert Murdoch has admitted in a deposition that some of his Fox hosts endorsed 2020 election lies. His statements made as part of Dominion's voting system's $1.6 lawsuit, billion-dollar lawsuit against the network. Just take a listen to how some Fox anchors talked about that 2020 vote. The president's lawyers alleging a company called Dominion, which they say started in Venezuela with Cuban money and with the assistance of Smartmatic software, a backdoor is capable of flipping votes. This president has to take, I believe, drastic action, dramatic action to make certain that the integrity of this election uh, is understood or lack of it. The crimes that have been committed against him and the American people. And Oliver Darcy joins us on this now. Oliver, much to discuss on this, but I just want to hone in. Um, What Rupert Murdoch admitted was that while Fox News didn't, and that's key, um, some of his top hosts were pushing election lies out to the audience and they knew they were doing it. Yeah, this is really strengthening, I think, Dominion's case against Fox News because Fox has argued up until now that they only aired newsworthy statements about the election after uh, after it was called for Biden. Uh, in other words, they didn't endorse these election lies, uh, but uh, they they had commentators and others 
say these things on its air. Now we're seeing in this deposition where Rupert Murdoch is under oath and he admits to Dominion that some of his top hosts did indeed endorse these election lies, election lies that he was privately referring to as damaging to the country, as, quote, BS. Um, but he was allowing those uh, commentators, those hosts, to go on his network and peddle this lie to viewers. Uh, it really exposes... Uh, this network is, is not really a news organization, but one that was profiting off of, uh, off of, frankly, lying, actively lying to its own audience. And they were being warned by people like the former House Speaker Paul Ryan that, that viewers were believing that they were watching credible sources and were being fed a diet of lies. And, and we have a, a sense of what the implications were of that. But I think you raised a very important point, which goes, I think, to the business model of media in that there was this fear that if you start telling the truth or you don't give salacious details or lies in this case, you lose eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem too for an anchor. News networks at, at, the, at the core are uh, the business models built on delivering the truth to viewers. And that's not always easy. And there are some imperfections. Sometimes news networks mess up, but they're honest with viewers at their core. In this case, what we're seeing from Dominion is uh, these documents is that Fox News knew privately behind the scenes that Trump's election lies were exactly that, lies. They privately trashed these lies in, in, in communications between themselves, behind the curtain. But when they went on air, when the cameras turned on, they fed these lies to the audience. And that is not really a, a business model of a news network. That's, that's the business model of, of a right-wing talk network, of a propaganda channel. But it's, it's, it's really important to distinguish what Fox was doing from what actual news organizations were doing at the time, which is fact-checking the president uh, and, and these dangerous lies he was telling about the U.S. Uh, election system. Yeah, I, I, there's a fine line there. I would argue that the business model of TV, unfortunately, is advertising, and that's based on eyeballs, and, and that's where the um, gray lines uh, start to appear uh, in terms of content. But um, that's a, a way bigger topic of conversation, Oliver, I think, um, and, and part of the dangers that we're facing, not just in TV, but in social media too. Um, Bringing it back to this and to Dominion, even if Dominion lose this case, Oliver, it has raised huge questions to all of your points, I think, about the conduct, whether it's of, of Fox News itself or, or specific anchors that were mentioned here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this has certainly uh, scared Fox away from mentioning Dominion on air. We saw, for instance, on Sunday, uh, the channel's uh, top media anchor say that he had been forbidden from covering this story on air as this lawsuit um, continues to get underway, uh, which is actually quite a striking admission. So Fox is just ignoring this altogether. But I will say that the, um, the, the anchors there or the hosts there, I hate to call them anchors, they're still sowing doubts about the 2020 election. You know, uh, after uh, one of these legal documents dropped the other week, Tucker Carlson led his show by, again, casting doubt on the validity that Biden won a fair election. I mean, you, you can't really make this stuff up. It just, again, highlights and underscores that um, these people are willing to actively lie to their audience. And, you know, they, they talk about how they need to respect the audience. And I guess in, in, in their eyes, that means feeding them whatever content validates their views, even if their views are, are predicated on false pretenses. I would argue that 
a true respect for the audience is being upfront with them, not treating them um, like uh, like they can't handle the truth. Um, but again, it's just not what we're seeing from from Fox. Maybe the viewers can, but the ratings can't. Um, Oliver, and just to complete the circle on this, um, Rupert Murdoch did say, quote, I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it in hindsight Mm -hmm. at another point in the deposition, just to make that clear. Oliver Darcy, thank you for that. Okay, coming up after the break, I have a rubbish story for you. Yes, I do. The startup recycling food waste into feed for chickens. Don't panic. I'll explain after this. Welcome back to First Move. Food waste is filling our landfills and worsening the climate crisis. The gases it generates accounts for 8 to 10 percent of greenhouse emissions worldwide. And my next guest, who originally pioneered the Nest Learning Thermostat, has now turned his attention to changing all that with a startup that collects discarded food products. A third of food is wasted here in the United States alone and ends up in places like this. The service, called Mill, provides consumers with a special composting bin which grinds up food waste overnight. The end product is then mailed back to the firm for processing into chicken feed. Matt Rogers is the co-founder and CEO of Mill and joins us now. Matt, fantastic to have you on the show. I can understand the premise here. Get rid of the leftover food that you have in your kitchens and actually make it into something useful and help the planet along the way. Just explain how the bin works and um, the secret process behind it. Yes. So Mill is a new system to prevent food waste at home. Uh, it starts with a new bin that you put in your kitchen that takes all the food that you don't eat, and dries and grinds it. It doesn't smell. It takes weeks to fill up. Then we have a service to come pick it up from your door to get it back to us, to get it back to farms to feed chickens. I love the fact that it doesn't smell. So you've worked on some kind of technology to prevent that because that was one of the first things that, that jumped out at me. What about noise and what about energy and how yeah. often do you have to run it? Yes. So it runs automatically overnight. And the most important thing for us is this has to be a better experience than people are dealing with today at home. And no one likes trash. Think about ripping bags and dripping in in their hallway as you take it out. So we want to make an experience that is just better, better for you, better for the planet and better for cities. And what about noise and how much energy? I, I think I read it takes about the same energy as a dishwasher running overnight. Yes, it, it takes about a kilowatt hour of energy a day, uh, which actually, in the grand scheme of things, is actually not very much. It, we're offsetting uh, about a half a ton of emissions per household per year by using the mill service. Mm. Methane emissions from landfills are actually an enormous part of uh, the climate equation. So it's really important that we keep food out of the trash. And I'm assuming it's some kind of process that dehydrates the food. Then what's the process to make it from whatever is provided and gets sent back to you into chicken feed. And what's the regulations around that? Because obviously, ultimately, people are going to be eating these chickens too. So that was one of the other things that sort of occurred to me. What's cool is what what comes out of our bin is still food. It's Mm. just dried food. It has all the nutrition, the calories, the protein that were in the food originally. So when we get it back to us, we sift it and filter it to make sure there are no contaminants. Someone didn't put a plastic bottle in by accident. We pasteurize it again, and we create a safe and nutritious ingredient for chicken feed. And there's no regulations around it, or there are regulations around it, or you're already feeding chickens? Because I know you've only just begun, so I'm, I'm sort of asking lots of questions and fasting forward, but it's, um, it's early days, I know. 
Yes, we're, we're still going through the required scientific and regulatory process to create a safe and nutritious ingredient for chicken feed. How long is that going to take? Uh, it sh should take a few more months. Uh, and out of respect for the process, I don't want to go into too, ma too many details of how that's going. <laughs> you can just tease me. Now, here comes the crux. The cost per month, $33. So for a dollar a day, you get a better kitchen experience and you feel good about doing something for the planet. Over time, what we're seeing is we could build uh, agreements with cities where cities could provide this in an augmentation to their trash service today. For example, we just signed a pilot agreement with the city of Tacoma, Washington, where they're gonna provide their residents the mill kitchen bin experience, and you could downsize your trash bin and basically get mill for free. Ah, okay. So when I was testing the water on this, because I always like to do this, um, I personally hate the idea and the smell and everything. So for me, it was like, this is a genius idea. The more people I spoke to, the idea of $33 a month, people were like, particularly in apartment buildings, which is separate, but they were concerned about the cost. So the real business model here for you, you're saying, is to work with cities, to work with localities, and hopefully offset that cost. That's right. We spend yeah. an enormous amount of money managing waste today. Yeah. I think the U.S. spends about $200 billion a year just managing waste, which effectively means throwing it away and throwing it in the landfill. So you can imagine over time us taking some of those dollars to prevent waste from ever existing. It's a much more efficient way of running our system, and it's better for the planet. Okay. And you've obviously had conversations with investors, I know, because you've raised more than $100 million on this. Talk to me about that process, too. So... Even in today's economic climate, there is a lot of interest in climate-friendly solutions that are also good for people, where the better for the planet good is also just better for you. You think about electric vehicle. Electric vehicles are better than gas-powered vehicles, or Nest thermostats are better than what came before. The, you know, investors are interested in what are solutions that take the planet forward, but also are just better for us. Is it is the conversation, are those conversations harder, though, to your point about the economic environment? We've certainly seen a lot of job cutting from the tech sector in particular and a sort of a reassessment of valuations. Are those conversations harder or is it OK if you're in the planet protection game? From, from my experience, it feels like the climate tech environment is more resilient than the general tech environment. And maybe that's because of you know, government uh, intervention in the IRA. Uh, the needs of the climate crisis, the climate crisis is not going away, regardless of economic cycles. So if you think about how much the economy needs to change over the next decade, a lot of new businesses are going to get created. Yeah. Final quick question. And my mother's going to approve of this question because things always disappear when her children are home. What happens if you throw a spoon or a knife in there? How robust is it? So nothing will break the bin at home. And when you send that spoon back to us, we'll, we'll filter it out. It's actually pretty easy for us to catch. No big deal. Just checking. Yeah, we might not get it back, but at least, um, yeah, the chicken won't get it. Matt, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. And we'll, uh, we'll track your progress. Thank you. Matt Rogers, the co-founder and CEO of Mill there. Welcome back to First Move. Fascinating new research is underway into the cause of so-called zombie wildfires. Now, they're blazes that inexplicably come back to life. CNN's Alison Chinchar reports in the latest edition of Transformers. It's summer in the remote boreal forests of Canada's Northwest Territories. And Rebecca Shulton, along with an international team of researchers, 
is on the hunt for signs of a rare and destructive phenomenon. So the first thing you notice when you get to a site that has had a zombie fire is that a lot of these trees have fallen over. And that is because of the underground burning that is happening. In 2015, this region of boreal forest was the scene of an overwintering fire, also known as a zombie fire. These are rare, so we don't have any footage of them, but they can look just like these regular forest fires, except they're back from the dead. So these are fires that are not extinguished at the end of a fire season, but instead they smolder deep into the organic soil layer, and when the snow comes, the snow kind of protects them from the adverse uh, winter conditions. And that makes it possible for them to smolder all throughout winter. And when the snow melts and there's dry fuels available again, these fires come up to the surface again and start a new flaming forest fire. In 2021, Scholten published the first ever scientific study to detect zombie fires using satellites and reports from local fire managers as part of her PhD. For example, in the summer of 2015, a fire in southwest Alaska blazed across 26 square miles. Winter came and snow covered the fire site. But the following spring, the fire returned along the old burn scar. Evidence, Scholten says, of a zombie fire. By burning through the soil and the roots, zombie fires can be more damaging to the forest than regular fires making it harder for them to recover. But that's not all. These boreal soils store huge amounts of carbon. So burning them releases it as carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Zombie fires are rare, but Scholten found that they are increasing due to climate change. So I think zombie fires are very good poster child for what is happening to Arctic wildfires in general. So we see fire regimes are intensifying and this has very important impacts on the ecosystems that of course has an impact on our climate. And that is why I think everyone in the world should care about these fires. Yes, we should. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at jchatterleycnn. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.